up on today's show, Marco Mendicino, Canada's public safety minister, will join us to discuss the new gun control legislation being proposed. Canada growing alarm, Chinese fighter pilots are buzzing Canadian pilots in surveillance planes. Tim Hortons gets in a little trouble. Their app, it tracked you a little too well. And Kelly Keene joins us. You know, if you're really having a hard time with inflation and interest rates, We've had a lot of discussion on the air over the past several days about gun control in this country. And it's kind of interesting because when you talk about gun control in this country, even the firearms advocates that we've had on the air and said, hey, we don't have a problem with gun control. There are lots of things that we think make great sense and we fully support. But there are some questions, and I think in many instances, legitimate questions about some of the things that we're doing around guns that... The question needs to be asked, okay, if it's going to be effective and it's going to be meaningful, we support it, but explain to me how it is. So to get some answers about what we're talking about with gun control and where this new proposed legislation is going, when it may actually become law, and there's a lot of uncertainty around it. We're going to chat now with Marco Mendicino, who is the public safety minister uh, for the government of Canada. Um, Minister Mendicino, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, of course, let's just dive right into this um, new gun legislation. Uh, the centerpiece, of course, is the National Handgun Freeze. And as you know, there are those who don't like it at all and say that it misses the mark. It's, it's a half measure. They wanted a national handgun ban. So let's start with that side of the argument. It's a freeze, not a ban. What's the difference and why not call it a ban and bring in a ban? Well, um, we listened to a lot of folks, and before we launched this legislation, which is uh, the strongest gun reform um, um, law package in in probably about a generation, um, we spoke with uh, law enforcement, we spoke with victims and survivors groups, we spoke with industry leaders, and we landed on a policy that we think we can uh, implement quickly and decisively and with great impact. And what the freeze will do is on a go-forward, make it illegal for anyone to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns. Why is this important? Because last week, Statistics Canada showed that the trends are all going in the wrong direction. Gun violence is up, handgun violence specifically is up, and domestic violence in connection with guns are up. And so by um, capping the universe, um, we are going to hopefully stymie that trend and reverse it. But it's not the only thing we're doing, as you know. We're also taking on organized crime with higher sentences for illegal smuggling of guns across our borders. And we're also going to uh, introduce red flag protocols, which will allow anyone to go to a judge and say, take away somebody's license, take away somebody's gun if they pose a threat to anyone else or themselves with additional protections uh, for the individual that steps forward to the court. And we uh, really built in the advice that we got from women's groups uh, and, and survivors groups. So, look, important piece of legislation. It's one step as, as, as part of a, me- a great number of steps that we've got to take to eradicate gun violence in our country. Minister, around that handgun issue, and you mentioned the report from StatsCan last week, and you're absolutely right. It shows a, a, a troubling trend uh, increasing in gun violence and handguns being at the center of that. But it also says, and it points out very clearly in that report, that there are big, big gaps in the data as to where these handguns come from. Very difficult to know what handguns are involved, where those handguns were sourced, if they were legal, if they were illegal. Toronto police have reported that 85% of the guns they've seized that have been involved in crime, they don't know if they're legal or illegal. So with what you're doing around legal handguns, how do you propose that's actually going to help when we don't even know if that's the problem and a lot of people say it isn't? You're, you know, you're right. You raise, uh, I think, a couple of important issues, which is what are the sources of guns used for crime? And one for sure is the border. And I think estimates range anywhere from, you know, as low as 35 or 40 percent, as high as 75 percent. So assuming it's roughly half, 
because the data does vary, um, we need to beef up our borders. And so what the bill does is it addresses illegal trafficking across our borders by, one, um, sending a very clear signal to organized criminals that if you try to do it, you're going to face stiffer sentences. Two, it also gives police more powers, the bill does, by giving them the ability to wiretap and interdict and stop gun crime from occurring in the first instance. And three, we're going to add more tools and resources uh, to CBSA and RCMP. I was recently out at the Pack Highway in BC. I saw the additional new technologies that they're putting in place, like x-ray technology, so that if guns are embedded in a truck or some other vehicle, vehicle, we can stop them there. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, you're right, if they're here, being used here in Canada, so if the gun is um, sold legally here in Canada, we also know that guns can be stolen and then used in the commission of a legal offense. And that's exactly what happened in the uh, Danforth shooting in my hometown. Um, and so we've got to be tackling uh, the, the problem on both fronts, both across the border and domestically, and the bill will do that. Um, the other question I had was, you're talking about stiffer sentences for organized crime and for smuggling and things like that, and I think everybody agrees with that. You, how could you not? Um, the other thing that a lot of police associations have talked about is getting tougher on people who use guns in the commission of an offense, and I think most people right. are supportive of that. You know, get tougher on bail restrictions, and if you use a firearms offense, there's a minimum sentence that comes along with using that. Minimum sentence you've moved away from, I know, in other areas and for different reasons, but um, police associations have, have recommended this. Is that something that you've considered? Well, for sure. And, you know, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police came out yesterday and said that the Bill C-21 will help keep our communities safer and will continue to engage with uh, law enforcement right across the country because we value their advice and the extraordinary work that they do to keep our community safe. And the other thing I think we've got to recognize is in order to really uh, get at the core of the problem, gun violence, you need smart, common sense gun policy. We believe that Bill C-21 reflects that. You need to support law enforcement at our borders and in our communities. We're doing that with the investments we've made and with the additional powers that are in the Bill C-21. And finally, you've got to get at the root causes of gun crime. And that means addressing social determinants. And by that, I mean access to safe housing, safe schooling, um, and making sure that young people who are at risk uh, make the right choices. And our $250 million Building Safer Communities Fund aims to do just that. And we're going to be rolling that out across the country. You know, I met with uh, Mayor Sohi earlier today uh, from Edmonton. Uh, looking, I've had some good uh, conversations with uh, Mayor Gondek, uh, Mayor, Mayor Giotti from Calgary. Uh, we need to work with uh, municipal leaders as well so that they can create these safe spaces to protect our kids. Um, Minister, there's a lot of, in this in this Bill C-21, or at least in the announcement, there's a lot of talk about, you know, we're going to do this, there'll be additional supports for law enforcement and things like that, but, I mean, this bill hasn't even passed. It's not even legislation at this point, and we've seen a lot of the proposals in this legislation come up before and die on the table. Um, when will this happen? What, what What's the timeline here, and what will it look like once it's implemented? Look, I've made it clear that I'm going to work with all members of Parliament, and I'm ready to take a call from any MP, from any political party, 24-7. It's that urgent. And my uh, urging to uh, to all, all parliamentarians is read the bill, debate the bill, and pass the bill as quickly as possible. The other thing that we've done is, in addition to tabling the law itself, I also tabled uh, amendments to the regulation to the Firearms Act so that the national handgun freeze can come into effect more quickly. But it's up to Parliament to look at those provisions and to determine uh, that we need to put them into place so that we can uh, really reverse the trend around handgun violence. 
which has been going in the wrong direction for far too long. And I hope we can do that as quickly as possible. Um, so as soon as the House reconvenes, that, that this will be at the front of the agenda and hopefully we'll have this moving very soon. Exactly. And in fact, um, you know, it's 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 uh, my intent uh, to start the debate on this bill tomorrow. So we're not wasting any time. OK. And as I said, um, we're, we're prepared to work with all parliamentarians to pass it. Wanted to ask you about you talk about the consultation. And, and as you say, you've spoken with mayors, you've spoken with police associations, you've spoken with doctors, you've spoken with urns groups. I'm, I'm wondering if have any of this firearms advocacy groups spoken with you. I've had a number of them on the air, and i got to say, they have their issues with this, but at the same time, they seem quite reasonable in saying there are gun control issues that we support, and we'd like to work with the government. Are they part of your consultation? Are they involved in these discussions? Absolutely. And, you know, we're going to continue to engage. And you're right. You know, we're probably not going to agree on every provision under Bill C-21, but that's never, uh, you know, a, a realistic goal. I mean, I think you try to find compromises where you can. And I do value that, you know, for those uh, uh, individuals who are industry leaders, for those who help to promote safety. And I just do want to give a shout out. I know that hunters and recreational shooters and farmers, you know, vast, vast, vast majority of them follow the law. They care about uh, keeping their guns stored safely, using them safely. That's not what this bill targets. What this bill targets is handgun violence. What this bill targets is organized crime. What this bill targets are the root causes that cause gun crime, and that's why we're prepared to work with everybody to get it passed as quickly as possible. Canadians are counting on us. You know, I mean, I can't tell you the the powerful conversations that I've had with people who have survived the Danforth shooting, Portapique and Truro in Nova Scotia, um, the Quebec City mosque shooting, um, Polytechnique. I mean, these are people whose whose loss is unimaginable, and they wouldn't wish it on anybody else. Mm-hmm. But they're urging us to do the right thing. And so we've got to come together. I know that there's going to be debate, and sometimes that debate can be intense. But I genuinely believe that Canadians can unite behind this bill because it will help us keep communities safer. Yeah, I think they definitely will on some components. And as you say, we're not going to agree on everything. And um, there are some that they won't agree with. But, uh, Minister, I've kept you longer than I said we would. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. alarming story. I don't know any other way to put it. Um, Basically, uh, Canadian government officials are growing increasingly concerned about what they call a dangerous escalation in aggression by Chinese fighter pilots in the skies, essentially around North Korea. And it's a Canadian surveillance plane that has been buzzed multiple, multiple times by these Chinese fighter jets. So to walk us through what's going on and and why this is happening and why it's so concerning um, is Charles Burton. We've had Charles on the show many times now. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute in Ottawa, non-resident senior fellow of the European Value Centre for Security Policy in Prague, and he served as a diplomat at Canada's embassy in Beijing. Charles, thanks for finding the time this morning. I appreciate it. Good to speak with you again, Shay. So, so this situation there, first of all, let's just define exactly what's happening. It's a Canadian surveillance plane, right, that's being buzzed by Chinese fighter pilots. Do I have that right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Canada is involved in what's called Operation Neon. And what this is about is um, enforcing the sanctions, the UN sanctions against North Korea because of North Korea's you know, extremely dangerous uh, program of nuclear missiles development and their, their testing of these missiles. Sometimes they've lobbed them right over Japan. Um, and so Canada, Australia, France, Germany, Japan, New Zealand, and U.S. and U.K. 
have a, a program to monitor the seas around North Korea to try and, and stop um, ships in the middle of the international waters from transferring um, oil and other sanctioned uh, supplies to North Korean vessels for transshipment to North Korea. So Canada um, has been sending um, uh, HMS Winnipeg, other other uh, naval boats, and yeah. these uh, CP-140 Aurora airplanes uh, to, to try and keep on top of whether North Korea is obeying the sanctions. Uh, what's been happening is that Chinese military jets have been coming up to the auroras really close in international airspace and um, getting so close that, you know, they're, they're able to, to um, give them the finger through the cockpit window. And, you know, they're saying that, that they can be coming like even 20 or 100 feet from the plane. Jeez. So the prospect for a, a crash is substantial. Um, you know, they've come up to the Canadian Plains about 60 times in the past uh, year or so, of which a couple of dozen of those times they came extremely close. So Canada has, um, you know, called in the Chinese embassy to say, like, don't do this. Yeah, yeah. Lead to disaster. And the Chinese aren't uh, responding in any way, and this is carrying on. So, I mean, the, the prospect for a crash and, you know, Canadian loss of life or Chinese loss of life appears to be uh, pretty strong. So it, it's puzzling as to why China is allowing their their pilots to hot dog like this and and potentially lead to a disastrous international incident. Well, that's, Are they doing it on purpose? That's the thing, Charles. Of course, the loss of life of the pilots would be tragic, And but I imagine if something like this were to happen... It could lead to a major, major incident between the two countries. It would have to, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, there was an incident back in 2001 where a U.S. spy plane was traveling, was flying along the coast of southern China in international airspace and similarly was being um, challenged by Chinese fighter jets. You know, I mean, this is... Uh, if you're still in international airspace, it shouldn't be happening. But if a plane gets within the air defense zone of a country, then, you know, the, that country's uh, planes are rallied up to, to push them away. Uh, you know, and this happens all the time. I mean, lots of countries test the air defense capability of their na of countries that they might have conflict with. You know, we get Russian planes running along the Canadian border and our planes go up and challenge them. But this, this situation is entirely in international waters. And in okay. 2001, there was an incident where a U.S. biplane uh, was being similarly challenged by Chinese Air Force planes that were coming far too close, and there was a crash. And the Chinese pilot, Wang Wei, was lost, and the Americans made a forced landing on Chinese territory. And the Chinese blamed the Americans for doing this on purpose and uh, held the 24-member crew for quite some time uh, pending an apology and so on. So the idea that China could be doing this to foment an incident between China and NATO you know, is a possible explanation. And I mean, it's completely incomprehensible otherwise why they would be going to such a risk. Um, you know, clearly, we're going to continue to monitor those waters. It's not like uh, it's not like they're going to scare right. the allies off from fulfilling our UN obligation. But the operation's not new. But this behavior seems to be new, right? This just started up quite recently. 
Yeah, I mean, this really seems to be connected to to Ukraine. Um, hmm, okay. And, uh, you know, the, the Chinese support for Russia there, and I guess increasing um, realignment of geopolitical forces where it seems to be the Russians and Chinese against uh, the liberal democratic world. And so you wonder if, if, you know, China has something in mind here, trying to foment an instant and force negotiations. And the other concern that we have in that region is the Chinese um, engaging in a military attack against uh, Taiwan to bring a, a de facto independent democratic uh, island nation into the control of the Chinese Communist Party from Beijing as a province of China. So, you know, there's a lot going on that's that's very worrying uh, that's been occasioned by this realignment due to the um, Ukraine invasion and the Western um, sanctions on Russia and forcing China and Russia closer together and, you know, just basically causing us to, to give up on our idea that we can have trustful relations with China and Russia. And we're definitely in confrontation. The question is, will it turn into war? So the question, I guess, is how do you foresee this? Is I guess it's impossible to predict, but will this behavior continue? Will it escalate? Is there anything that, you know, the UN and Canada can do in response? Or how does this end? Well, I mean, that's the question is, what do you do when the Chinese regime is acting, you know, in a way which is gross violation of any normal diplomatic or military engagement standards? And we, you know, we've engaged them many times to to ask the Chinese to ensure that their that their pilots don't do this anymore. China is not responding. The thing is still continuing. So does this mean that that we have to engage in other measures to to sanction China to give them some disincentive? Uh, you know where does where does it stop? It it doesn't stop with us simply tolerating North Korea violating the sanctions and withdrawing our our naval frigates and and uh, and Air Force Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, resources in that region. So, you know, what is China trying to achieve by this? And certainly Canada's doing absolutely nothing wrong by, by running those right. uh, those auroras in international waters around North Korea. You know, there's no, there's no, uh, there, there's, there's, the, the fault is is 100% on the Chinese side. You know, there's just no, there's just no compromise here or any reasoning to it because Canada's not doing anything that should justify this kind of dangerous behavior. Last and one, China Charles. China shouldn't be rallying their, their, their air force into international airspace. Is it just a Canadian plane that's doing this surveillance or are other countries being harassed as well? Or is it just a Canadian plane? Well, we know that there are other countries that operate there. We do it on a shared basis. You know, we're not there continuously, but we share with our allies. We don't have any information as to whether the okay. Chinese have been engaging in this with other countries. But maybe now that uh, now that the story is broken, we will hear more from from uh, the allies. But it may be that China feels that attacking Canada is is uh, less provocative than, than going for the United States directly. Yeah, and not much consequence. Charles, thanks for your time, as always. I really appreciate it. Good to speak with you. This is Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute in Ottawa uh, and a former diplomat at Canada's embassy in Beijing, bringing us the latest not good news, not good news, Canadian pilots being buzzed by Chinese fighter pilots within 20 feet, close enough that the Chinese pilots are giving them the finger through the cockpit.
You probably heard the story yesterday. The Federal Privacy Commissioner uh, has completed their investigation into the Tim Hortons app, uh, and they found that, yeah, it broke all kinds of rules, collected um, extensive amounts of data, didn't have the proper consent from people to do so, passed it on to third party, all kinds of things. Troubling, troubling. But at the same time, to me, it doesn't really come as a big surprise. I mean, I think the assumption for a lot of us is, hey, if you've got a phone and you've got an app, you're being tracked. But... Um, you know, the privacy is definitely an issue. So we're going to chat now with Dr. Tom Keenan, who's a professor in the School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape at the University of Calgary and author of the best-selling book, Technocreep. Dr. Keenan, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Shay. Listen, this Tim Hortons app, first (laughs) of all, tell us, what did it do? What was the point of this, and, and why did it run afoul of our privacy commissioner? I think this is a good way to understand it. I have a cat, and sometimes he gets out of the yard, right? So I put a GPS collar on him, and I can track the little son of a gun. It tells me every five minutes where he is. If he's not home by dark, I go and I fetch him like his Uber driver. That's what Tim Hortons was doing to customers. They were tracking people, and they weren't just tracking them when the app was open, which is what they said they were doing. They were tracking you all the time. So this one reporter went on vacation to Marrakesh, and he found out that Tim Hortons knew that he was on vacation there. And the other thing that it did is it logged, like if you went to, you know, we were talking about Starbucks with Sarah. If yeah. you went into a Starbucks, Tim Hortons knew, right? Absolutely. And, you know, this all started in 2019. They thought they would have a new marketing approach. So we don't know for sure what was in their minds at the time, but it sounded like they were going to go, oh, Shay is about to go into a Starbucks. Let's send them a coupon for the Tim Hortons three doors away, 50% off a double-double. Maybe we can win him over. So that's the kind of thing they were contemplating, but they never did it, but they still kept collecting information. And it gets worse. They hired a company out of New York called Radar Labs, and Radar Labs uses artificial intelligence. So this reporter, James McLeod from the Financial Post, got under Freedom of Information, under Papita, he got all of his records, and it found that he knew, that it knew where he worked. They had inferred where his office was, and even that his office was in the southwest corner of the building. And, you know, that kind of information on our location is pretty invasive. It can be quite dangerous. Okay, we'll get to the third-party thing in a moment, because you're right, that's a big, big deal. But I want to back up just a little bit and say, when you when you downloaded the app, Sarah couldn't make it work. But if she had, and she had <laughs> gone through the terms of service, would it have told her that this was going to be doing what it did, or did they go beyond what they told users? Like, did you know it was going to be tracking you even when you didn't have the app open? So they definitely went beyond it in the specific case of did it happen, did it track you when it was off? Because they said, and it was a lie, they said the app will only track you when you've got it open. Why this gets complicated is it's different for iPhones and Android phones. Sometimes things work in the background. So without getting all technological, they certainly didn't make it clear to anybody what was going on. And they collected all this information, you know, for marketing purposes, but they never used it for that. One of the principles of information is if you tell somebody you're collecting something for this, don't use it for that. Did they use it for anything? I mean, I know they handed it off, and we'll talk about that in a second, but did Tim Hortons actually use it for anything? Apparently what they did is they aggregated some of it, okay, so that they weren't looking at particular people, and they were looking at trends. So, you know, this is legitimate. Years ago when I was the dean of continuing education at the University of Calgary, I ordered a report of what 
postal codes people were taking our courses from, and if we were underrepresented in part of the city, I would do extra mailings to them. So, you know, that kind of stuff is legitimate, but again, you got to kind of let people know what you're doing. You can't do this clandestinely. Okay, now the partnering with the third party in New York, that mm. that is more concerning, because once you sort of hand all this data over, you really have no longer any control over what it's used for. So what's the risk with bringing in this third party? So the first thing is that they, they're they called Radar Labs. They're down in Brooklyn, and they have lots of big customers like American Eagle, uh, Cars.com. And what they claim they do is customize your customer's experience. So by location, they're all about location, they will tell your customer, did you know that there's this American Eagle store just a block away? Why don't you go there? That type of thing. So that's their official purpose. But, you know, the reality is once you've got information Let's say I know what you did, that the first thing you did this morning is you got up and you went to a mosque. Well, now I know your religion. Next thing, you went to a cancer clinic. Well, gee, I now know that you have a disease, or maybe you haven't told anybody about it. So what people don't get is your minute-by-minute location, which is what this thing was tracking, actually tells a lot about you. In fact, it probably tells me enough to identify you. Okay, scary enough. Um, What was the punishment? Now that we've determined that Tim Hortons has gone too far, they got in big, big trouble, right, Doc? I mean, they really got it. (laughs) So, shaming. Really, in Canada, (laughs) the good news is that we have privacy commissioners, and Jill Clayton, the Alberta commissioner, was was in on this as well. So she, you know, is a participant in the investigation. But the privacy commissioners can't do anything. In the U.S., the Federal Trade Commission, which does similar things, can find the pants off a company, and this probably would have happened if they had done this in the U.S. So the privacy commissioners I've talked to, the Federal Commissioner, would like the power to make judgments and enforce them. So what Tim Hortons did is they had to kind of confess they had to, you know, tell everybody what they did, destroy the data. And that's an interesting point about what happens to the data. I, I knew the chief of legal for Google, and when they did Google Maps, and very few people know this, they went around taking pictures of everybody's street and so on. They also collected Wi-Fi. They collected, so my house, they would know what Wi-Fi I had in there. And then it turned out they weren't authorized to do that. So I talked to this lawyer for Google, and I said, what'd you do with that data? He said, it's on a hard drive in a safe in my office. Well, Tim Hortons went one further. They claim they destroyed all the granular data that they collected. Hey, I wanted to ask you before I let you go. I see these commercials now for the new iPhone that has... App security. You can turn off all of this stuff that we're talking about. Doesn't matter what the app wants to do. The phone won't let it. Does that work? That sounds too good to be true. It's an improvement. Okay, so, and and to be fair to Google, who makes Android, they have in their latest release added that kind of security, too. It's only as good as the person who uses it, though. So if you really want something like that free Tim Hortons donut or Timbit or whatever, and it goes, I want permission to use your camera, you know, sell your house, do this, do that, uh, you're going to go, yes, 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 yes. So people need to wake up and realize that they shouldn't be saying yes to everything. And sometimes when you deny the permission, it doesn't let you use the app, but maybe you shouldn't be using that app. <laughs> <laughs> a brave new world. Dr. Keenan, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Okay, thanks, Jake. You bet. That's Dr. Tom Keenan, who is a professor in the School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape at the UFC, also author of the best-selling book, Techno Creep.
the inflation rate and the interest rates. We, we talked a lot about them in recent months because um, it will affect us, but I'm not sure if any of us really are aware of how much, how it will affect us, what we can do to possibly lessen the blow. Is there anything we can do? So we're going to chat with, uh, I think, the, the best financial uh, expert that we bring on here, um, and that's Kelly Keene. Uh, Kelly joins us regularly. She is a personal finance educator, a best-selling author, and uh, the go-to when it comes to all of these issues. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Shay, my friend, thank you for the kind words. I, it's an important conversation, so always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's true. I mean, Sarah was just saying, like, she's 23 years old, and she's not really into this financial stuff. She said, I love it when you have Kelly on. She makes it interesting and understandable oh. for me. So, I mean, you, you're, the, you're the go-to for us. There's no doubt, Kelly, so we appreciate your time. Um, First things first, when we're, when we're talking about, let's let's start with um, interest rates, okay? They went up again yesterday. Um, is this something we all need to be aware of? Is this something we all need to pay attention to? I think for a lot of people, these sorts of things happen and we think, oh, okay. But, I mean, is it something that we all should say, okay, how is this going to affect me? Should we at least be paying attention? I would say almost everyone, Shay. The odd exception might be somebody with zero debt that isn't going to be helping out their kids or grandkids because... You know, if Sarah's 23, she wants to get a house at some point in the future, maybe a car. This is going to affect her affordability. If you have a mortgage, there's a very good chance that you are variable. And if you're not variable, and we can unpack all of this, yeah. there's a super good chance that you have a HELOC, a home equity line of credit, attached to your mortgage that you might not realize is variable. And then what I'm hearing from people... Um, you know, all over the province. I'm in Toronto right now, so more in Ontario because housing is ridiculous here. But so many parents and grandparents saying, look, they did well with real estate. They want to help their kids out, but they might be actually like taking out financing themselves to help out their kids. So all of this is just like uh, a, a more expense. Oh, okay, here, case in point. Yeah, even for your older listeners, woman just emailed me yesterday. I was doing tons of national TV saying I'm power of attorney for my mom, like, should I sell? Because now she's hearing, you know, housing prices on average have dropped. Is this a good time to sell? Right. So, yeah, this probably does affect almost everyone. Now, if you're just running around, you rent a house, you don't have a lot of debt, you just have credit cards. Like, does this impact credit cards, interest rates? No, those are pretty much fixed, right? Exactly. And I heard so many news reports yesterday, including credit cards. Here's the thing about credit cards. Interest rates usually don't go up with credit cards when they go up, and they don't also don't go down, right? If you're in 24%, 28%, 12%, this is where you really got to look at what your rate is. No, they don't fluctuate. What they do fluctuate with, though, Shay, and we've talked about this before, if you're late with your payment, if you're late with your minimum payment, you can actually go from like 20% up to, I've seen 28%. It's in the fine print. You would have it on your statement. Most people bank digitally these days, so they don't even look yeah. at their statements. Um, so, yeah, you know, I know where Sarah's coming from, and a lot of listeners are like, ah, that doesn't affect me. But this is a great signal for you to really dig into your finances, have a look at what's going on, um, to really see, yeah, you know, talk with your banker, your financial professional, whatever, and, and, and see if you should make adjustments based on inflation, increasing interest rates, you know, continuing crisis, this is a great time to have that, that talk. Yeah, I mean, just sit down and figure out where you are. And if it is impacting you, if it is impacting you, are there things you can do? You keep seeing this interest rate go up month after month after month. Can you can you try and protect yourself, give yourself a bit of a bubble here, or is it you're just sort of at the mercy of the bank? Well, here's a couple of things. So if you're variable, 
Um, historic. So, so for your listeners that aren't familiar, uh, you know, you can you can have your mortgage interest rate fluctuate with Prime, which right. means that it's a lot lower than if you lock in, let's say, at a five or seven or a ten year term. Uh, but the thing is, and historically, that is going to get it's going to yield you the lowest rate. Now. In an environment where rates have already gone up three times this year, uh, Tiff Macklem yesterday at the Bank of Canada is saying it's not off the table that a three-quarter of percent hike could be coming. And economists keep saying that they're going to go up. I mean, I have friends that are, you know, high on the pay grade here in Bay Street, and they've been saying forever, interest rates can't go up. They cannot go up because the economy can't handle it. Our government has borrowed a gazillion dollars. We can't handle it. And what's happening? Interest rates are going up. So, you know, if you're worried and you can't sleep at night, this is a really good time to figure out should you lock in because historically you're still at the lowest. And then like I was saying, Shay, a lot of people have these hybrid mortgages. They don't realize that either at the time when they got their mortgage, they did maybe mostly a five-year fixed, something like that. And then either at the time the bank said, hey, you know what? We can give you a little line of credit for emergencies, or maybe they physically went and got one for renovations, traveling, whatever, and you don't realize that a big chunk, or could be a big chunk, is actually floating with Prime. Maybe you're thinking in your head, no, 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 I'm in a fix, and you might not be. So this is a really good time to dust off the mortgage document, uh, bank, you know, hop online to your, your bank's app, and see, you know, really take a peek. Um, and then very lastly, if you're, let's say, your term's expiring coming up here, you know, this is a time to really batten down the hatches and, you know, try to find some extra dollars that you can tuck away because your rate is probably going to be higher than it was. Now, Kelly, let's say, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there, especially people who are in the retirement phase of their lives, who sort of had a, this is how much it's going to cost us, this is what our budget is, and all of a sudden that budget's been blown all to hell with interest rates and with inflation over the past, I don't know, six months to a year. Are there things you can do at this point? Are there ways you can stretch the dollar a little farther? Oh, it's pretty tough, and and you know I hate having the conversation. I hate the B word, right? I hate budgets. I hate cutting, but... There's always, I mean, what I do, make my husband do it every six months. We do my 30-day anti-budget. We really comb through all of our, our spending and just see, like, you know, what what's kind of fluffy. Now, my mom's 84 and retired on a fixed income. She doesn't have subscriptions that she, you know, took on during COVID. She doesn't have anything she can cut. Her, you know, direct energy is going up. Her upcore is going up. Everything's going up. Um, so, you know, there's really not a lot that you can do other than, you know, let's say you do have investments. Let's say, yeah. you've, you know, y- you can look at like maybe things like, are you overpaying in fees? Could you reduce the fees so you can get more in? Um, you know, some people are looking at that reverse mortgage. I, I, I'm neutral on it. I, I don't think it's good or bad. I think it serves a purpose. Um, you really got to read the fine print really got to read the fine print, but it's an option for some people that just need to, you know, be in their home, but they're cash poor. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you're not 84, even if you are 84, like I am hearing from so many people that are taking on side hustles. They're making this their, their, um, you know, what do you call it? Uh, Their encore career. They're taking something that was a hobby and they're saying, can I just bring in 500 bucks a month from it? A thousand bucks? 
couple hundred dollars and it's keeping their mind sharp and their energy sharp and their passion. And if they can bring in a few hundred dollars, like if we're only looking at how to cut and we're bemoaning the fact that all of this is going on, which yet sucks, don't get me wrong. You're not asking the question of how can I bring in more money? Where is their money that could be brought in? And I think that, that that's always an exciting conversation to have. And, you know, I have friends like even working like, like you, Shay, in traditional media or whatever, they've got side hustles going sure. on, doing oh, yeah. consulting or freelancing on the side. And, and you know what? They're able to go out for some dinners and they're able to have a drink out and they're able to maybe even budget for a vacation because that side money um, is allowing them to actually have a, a decent quality of life. Yeah, they're working a lot more, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I'd rather work more and not be stressed about money than than be chilling, watching Netflix, stressed about money. You no know? question. Absolutely. Last one, I'll let you go. Um, you mentioned investments. Now, that's the other side of this equation. We're seeing the cost of everything go up, and your investments, if they're in the market, Kelly, have probably been kicked pretty hard over the last few months because it's way down. Yeah. Is it time to abandon that and look for other vehicles, or do you sort of hold it out if you're, if you're heavily invested in market you know, um, commodities? Do you stay there? Here's the hard and fast rule. If you were in there for a reason, like you should have been there, you don't get out because the market has changed. Okay. Now, if you, you know, we're chasing crypto or chasing something that tanks, yeah, uh, maybe you shouldn't have been there in the first place. But this isn't the time to run in high. This is the time to buy more if you're in solid stuff. So talk to a financial professional if you've been doing it DIY. Look, just Google, you know, some graphs so you can see that even when COVID hit, the market tanked, and then look how fast it came back up. You can't time the highs and you can't time the lows. Those conventional savings accounts that we've sort of neglected for many, many years now because there's been no return in a savings account because there's been no interest rate, has that changed or is it changing to maybe, hey, you know what, maybe some of these really safe conventional bank products are going to work now? Yeah, you know what? They're decent and actually, yeah, you're seeing something, especially if you're sitting on a big chunk of change. But here's the takeaway. Remember, after tax, after inflation, you're always going to be losing money in something like that. So if you don't need the money and you can lock it up into something more long term, that's not going to really benefit you. And, you know, think about back in the days when interest rates were 20 percent, like you and I were babies, but inflation was right there. So now let's say you lock into a GIC or a bond at a decent rate and inflation goes down. Okay, you're winning. Um, But but that's a hard one to predict. So, yeah, great time to be looking at your savings, at your debt, at everything. All right, Kelly, great advice as always. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.